Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, Scott and I are back. Hey there, Scott. What's going on, Stace? Having a great day. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about um, abuse dynamics. And, uh, you know, we we might talk about this a couple times, but Scott was given um, an example. He was sharing a story with me, and I think that would be a good place for us to start today, Scott, to talk about that. Sure. And I'll set it up by uh, one of the things we talk about in our trainings is sort of this barriers to disclosure And it's interesting in our discussions, we can think about abuse dynamics surfacing also as or having a secondary characteristic of surfacing as a barrier. But there's some common barriers to uh, disclosure that tie into these dynamics that we're going to talk about today. And normally when we train, we say, like, you know, what's the number one barrier to disclosure? It's the number one barrier on average in general for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It's fear. And then there's physical dependence, economic dependence, isolation, credibility, communication. So we talk about those and spend a lot of time on credibility and communication. But I wanted to talk today about an example that has to do with physical dependence. So this is a real story, real case, ripped rip from not the headlines, ripped from my memory of a real case. And it was interesting because this is not something I came across professionally. It was something I came across in my social or personal life. So a friend of mine had a friend. So it's a friend of a friend. And she, I can't remember her exact disability, but she used a power wheelchair and she needed a uh, assistance with um, physical tasks. So bathrooming, getting dressed, eating. She was pretty independent in her power wheelchair, um, but she needed assistance for everything else. Uh, everything else. Super sharp, funny, um, smart, uh, had a great job. I can't remember exactly what she was, something in finance, just wonderful and, and full of life. And I remember um, we were out one night, so this was a friend of a friend, and it was a social event, and we met her new boyfriend. And I don't know, Stace, you ever meet somebody and think, holy shit, this guy sucks, yes. right? Yeah, so I mean, you you just got that like vibe, like, oh God, like, ugh, no, no. So like when you do this long enough, right? I feel like we get that even more. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You get, I mean, right, like we get skewed. I see everybody as a perp, you know, right. everybody. That, that's a problem too. Yeah. You see everyone, especially if my daughter's around, everybody seems like a perp to me, but it looks like a perp. You just, so you get skewed. You don't want to do that either. But this guy, you just got the sense. And, and certainly in retrospect, that feeling is validated. So I may be remembering it more strongly, but I, I got a sense that, and I think my my friend who who the connection is through felt the same way too, but it, it is what it is. Adults are entitled to make shitty decisions <laughs> based on uh, whatever. So um, as adults, but what happened was, so like, I don't know, six months later, this is sort of the fallout of all this and what I heard. So apparently he moves in with her and he starts becoming a little verbally abusive to her as she's disclosing to my friend. And I'm getting this, the download six months later. Maybe it was a little longer. And apparently 
she's got a great support network mm -hmm. and her friends and was one of my friends was telling her like hey this is somewhat abusive you need to tell him to stop and so forth and then eventually she tells him he has to move out so she's leaving to go to work and she's in her power chair and he comes up behind her and grabs the joystick and makes her power wheelchair go over the curb and the wheelchair flips over. So she's pinned down now in this mm. uh, 500 pound wheelchair. And she, this is the story I was getting and she was you know, keeping her head up from like as best she could because there's a puddle of water and he leans down right next to her and says, you're never fucking leaving me. And thank goodness, you know, the, the happy or not the happy ending, but a better ending for this is she had the right people to get her into a, a shelter immediately. And there, but OK, so you hear all this information. Right. Now you've gathered all this information and she's going to be in front of you and you're going to be conducting a forensic interview. How is that background, those dynamics uh, helpful and useful to, to you as the forensic interviewer? And is there anything else you want to know? Because I'll make it up if I can't remember. <laughs> well, there's probably lots of things I want to know, but you, you've painted a picture of her capabilities, her communication, you know, isn't something that we have to take into consideration. No. Um, but we, of course, we want to make sure that the space is adequate for her, know what the good time of day is that's least disruptive to her schedule and her life um and yeah, let me let me stop yeah like we don't emphasize enough and i probably don't yet making sure that wherever you're conducting the interview that it is physically accessible and welcoming and not having to maneuver through or have people moving things out of the way in real time that does not feel very welcoming and safe and secure. Absolutely. So before the person arrives, before the interview time happens, making sure that if those adjustments need to be made to your physical space, that it's already been done. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. No, it was just so important. I wanted to make sure we highlighted. I that. think it's important because I just said it like, oh yeah, you should totally do that. So it's, it's well, you're good. Yeah, you're, you're good at doing that. <laughs> but you know, sometimes we don't even think about it. It's important for us to to remember. So making sure that our physical space is there um, are all all the things I would think about. But I would also be curious sort of, you know, in that moment when I'm speaking with this person, just sort of like how she's doing with everything. So this is a big life change that she's had. And when we think about some of those abuse dynamics, so, for, you know, in this situation, we're talking about that, that physical dependence that she has on other people. Yeah. So I didn't, I, I didn't add that. So she no longer needed a personal care attendant. He started taking on that role. So that was another dynamic. I think you knew that dynamic. I didn't share it with the, with the, in the podcast here, but yeah, she so she was dependent on him mm -hmm. physically uh, for that support because she no longer needed the attendant because he took over that role. That's right. Yeah. So that, you know, that brings up a whole bunch of other questions like, OK, so does she have someone else who's able to do that for her? So it's it's not only in the interview are these things going to come up, but what can we do as a multidisciplinary team and who do we need to engage to, you know, and she's already it sounds like she's got a great support system. So maybe she's already working on those things herself and doesn't need our help with that. So we also don't want to assume, yep. you know, in any of those ways. So just checking in, like, how is she doing? Does she have the things that she needs? Because her basic needs being met prior to that conversation with me or knowing that those basic needs are on their way to being met prior to that conversation with me is going to be huge because if someone's basic needs aren't met, the likelihood that they're going to be able to engage in a conversation like that is going to be Diminished. less. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm going to want to make sure that, you know, those, those boxes are sort of checked for her if they can be um, before the conversation. And then I think from, 
you know, an interviewer standpoint, it's important for us to be aware of those dynamics. And like you said at the beginning, how they can come up as those barriers to disclosure. So understanding the dynamics is important for us because is there a pattern of behavior that we now need to identify that this person's experienced? It probably just didn't start off with, you know, him toppling her wheelchair over on top of her. So, you know, what's been going on in the six months or three months or whatever leading up to that. So I think it's important for us to remember and understand these abuse dynamics because people have, offenders have very intentional behaviors when they do things for a reason. And there's often a buildup of, you know, the abuse behaviors, they increase in either frequency or intensity or both. And I think that that sort of painting that picture during an interview is important for us when we think about this didn't just happen overnight. There there had to be things that led up to this. And what are the potential vulnerabilities that exist for this person? And how would an offender choose to exploit them? Because that's often what we see. And it sounds like that's part of what happened here in this case you're talking about. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's, it's, um, it speaks to a lot of some of the work that we do in forensic interviewing as a piece of a kind of a larger puzzle of the entire investigatory process, but it also speaks to these pre-interview things that we talk about, getting this information ahead of time is gonna influence and impact how you conduct the forensic interview to ensure that you're gonna get the most most useful, uh, most legally defensible information, reliable information, Uh, that you can you want to set yourself up to be able to do that and the more you can understand what some of those features and dynamics of the abuse were the more useful that can be yeah and it also makes me think so we know physical dependence was one of the vulnerabilities right potentially that this person chose to exploit but you know are there other components as well like what what's the economic situation is that now changed because this person's no longer there did they bring some sort of income into the house is that going to change is the person going to necessarily feel um you know, when I'm talking with them, are they going to maybe feel embarrassed or ashamed? Those are things that maybe we have to overcome. Don't know. So all these things we go into with an open mind. Yeah. You know, when you were saying that, I was thinking about, you know, we talked about the number one barrier to disclosure is fear, but fear play may play a role in here as well. Fear of, am I going to get, you know, the assistance I need for the physical needs that I have, uh, physical fear because of the fear for my safety, because if, if he's free, um, he already demonstrated that he can harm me. And um, I was thinking about another piece of this that maybe we wouldn't automatically think about. So yes, yeah, so we have the physical abuse, but there could be sexual abuse as well because somebody's capacity to consent can be impacted by fear. Mm-hmm. So that would be something that I didn't initially think about at the time when I was thinking about the physical abuse that occurred and the emotional abuse, psychological abuse that was occurring that potentially there could also have been sexual abuse that for fear of um, retaliation, for mm-hmm. fear of a number of different things. So knowing that going in and be thinking about, okay, so there's some questions around the consenting to sexual behavior, not necessarily questioning her overall capacity to consent, because I don't think that was in question, but under these dynamics and tactics that this perp was using, that's on the table. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and polyvictimization is something we should always be thinking about for sure. And I think that's one of the things that we're, we're talking about a lot in training lately too, is just because something comes to you looking like one thing doesn't mean there couldn't be lots of other things underlying. And usually we know that there is. So, you know, it's exploring all of the things. So the physical, of course, that brought 
brought this up, but then, you know, the verbal, the power and control dynamics that likely existed and are there other forms of abuse going on too? Something to think about. All right. Well, hopefully that discussion was useful for you, for our listeners. And uh, thanks, Stace. Yeah, thank you. Lots to think about with dynamics and disclosure and then the <laughs> sort of the, the outcome of what all that can look like for folks as we think about poly victimization and sort of not leaving any stone unturned is really important in all of our cases. Great. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.